0: perspectives for secular problems. Amen? Amen. As is always the case, and as it is with God's providence, our text is particularly relevant to our situation today. And therefore, I want to forego any kind of introduction this morning and get straight to the two points that I have in store for us There will always be people who think your time in worship with God's people would be an ample waste of their time. And there's always going to be people who think that time reading God's word and becoming wiser about the things of God would be an ample waste of their time. There will always be people who think this way. First, it shouldn't surprise you. And second, it shouldn't stop you. It shouldn't surprise you because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Do you get those last two words? Spiritually discerned. But second, not only shouldn't it surprise you, but it shouldn't stop you, because regardless of what people think of you or how you live your Christian life, you don't answer to people. Say amen. You don't answer to anybody. Ultimately, you answer to the king. And that should give a little, that should rouse the rebel in all of us. You know, I say this sometimes. I was a rebel before Jesus, and when I met Jesus, it got worse. I think some of us need to be reminded that Jesus and the apostles were revolutionaries. They lived life against all secular norms, not because they wanted to be insurrectionists, but because they lived life according to a different kingdom, namely the kingdom of God. No creature is hidden from his sight. Hebrews 4.13 says, But all, how many? All. all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give our account. Ladies and gentlemen, every single one of us will give an account to God for the lives that we lived and the faith that we had or had not. I'm introducing my two points to you this morning because I want you to grasp the reality of the juxtaposition we're looking at. You live according to Christ or you live according to the world? There is no middle lane. You choose to follow Christ and be in contradiction to the world or you choose to follow the world and be in contradiction to Christ. I believe that it's high time for the church of Christ to stand up To be heard and to be recognized, listen to these words, for the spirit-led body that it is. Not the policy-led body, not the popular vote body, not any of that stuff, but the fact that the church of Jesus Christ is a spirit-led body. Not because of its loud and annoying antics but because it's holy and fair and loving and just and uncompromising about what is right and wrong. That's the church. Now, it doesn't matter whether we fall as a result of that on this line or that line or on this side. or that. That's not relevant. What's relevant is where do I stand with Christ? And what I want to bring to your attention today is the fact that Christ is going to speak to us about spiritual perspective in light of secular problems. Two simple points, the first of which is this, the Christian in the world, the Christian in the world. If you look back at your text for a second, John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, it says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would what? It'd love you. If you were of the world, the world would love you because it loves its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, They're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all things they will do to you on account of whose name? My name. Because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse... For their sin. And frankly, neither do we. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law, kind of an ironical statement there, Jesus says, in their law, it's His law, you know. But in their law, they know it is written, what does it say? They hated me without a cause. First point again, the Christian in the world. Now, throughout John's gospel, there has been a contrasting of God's way and the world's way. Jesus' teaching and the world's teaching. The disciples' lifestyle And the world's lifestyle. For example, I'm gonna, I think some verses are gonna come up here on the screen. You can jot them in your outline. John chapter 1, verse 10. It says, He was in the world, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. Jesus was in the world, and although the world was made by him, the world did not know him. John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus is speaking here and he says, This is the judgment. Light, speaking of himself, light is coming to the world. But people love darkness rather than light. John chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus says that the works of the world are evil. So when John here and Jesus in his talk to his disciples refers to the world, he's referring to a system that is anti-God, a group of people that are anti-God. We can even say anti-Christ, not the anti-Christ, but the spirit of the anti-Christ that's already pervasive today in the world, that we see as often as we turn on the television or look online or read an article, we see that the decisions that are being made, the current of the thought that is pervasive in the world is not going in a direction that honors God, but is emphatically going the opposite direction, without care, without concern. The way of Christ and the way of the world. Those two ways are opposed to each other. Now from this text, there are a couple of things that I think are worth our attention out of the gate. I'm going to mention them to you here first. I want you to note that the world hates Christians because of their association with Christ, the one they hated first. The world hates Christians Because of their association with Christ, the one it hated first. Listen, our association with Christ places us squarely in the line of descendants that were persecuted, mistreated, and martyred. The majority of authors to whom we look for spiritual counsel in the Bible were killed for what they believe and what they wrote. Most of the things that are in the Bible were written by authors who were killed for having written those things. The author of Hebrews even acknowledges this in chapter 11 of Hebrews, and he's talking about those who were, sometimes we refer to it as the hall of faith, those people who were examples of faith in their life that they lived and that they were killed for their faith, and he says, but the world was not worthy of them. If we identify with Christ, church, we will be persecuted. But Jesus reminds us, it did so to him first. There's nothing that we can say or do to nullify or placate the reality that is this. If we identify with Christ, we identify with someone the world persecuted. And if we identify with someone the world persecuted, follow me here, we too will be persecuted. Thus, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, a beautiful verse, 1 Peter 4, 16, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In what name? In the name of Christ. So the first thing that we need to note is that the world hates Christians because of their association with Christ. It's a fact. Secondly, I want you to note this. I want you to note what Jesus isn't saying. Jesus isn't saying that the world will always hate Christians as much as it possibly can. He says in chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you. Now, I know that we understand the word if to be a conditional clause right if the world hates you what when jesus says if the world hates you this is more of an assumption he he's it's like he's saying if the world hates you and it's going to hate you remember that it hated me first that's really what jesus is saying but but i want to draw a line in the sand here nevertheless it's a line just follow me are you with me say amen Okay, I want to draw a line here, and I want you to know you you guys know my personality, you know how I am, you know I'm militant. Right? You know sometimes I'm coarse and abrasive and I and I don't mind a good fight. It's just this is the way you know you get raised by a football coach and a bunch of argumentative people, and this is I'm okay with this. Let's fight, I'm good. God's working on me with these things. But I say that to say this. Some of you are like that too. Thank you. Some of you have no problem being confrontational and abrasive. I think what I'm trying to say to you in light of what Jesus is saying is that I think we can, we can receive this word. I know I need to receive this word sometimes. I, I want you to receive this word too. I don't think Jesus is saying that when we come into contact with the world, we're always going to be hated. I think that there are some people who will respect you for the fact that you're a Christian. I think that there are some people who will even appreciate your Christian perspective on a thing like marriage, or parenthood, or principles, or why you vote one way or another, etc. I think that there are some people who will say, well, I respect your opinion on that, but they're not going to bow the knee to Christ. Now I bring this to your attention because I want you to hear something. Say amen if you're listening. Don't lose opportunities to witness to people like that because you assume they want to fight. They might not want to fight. Now, they might be against you in so much that they're against Christ, but they don't. They may not be ugly to you. They, they may not say, oh, man, I'm having so many problems in my marriage. And, and you might say, man, I'll tell you what. Going to church, my, my pastor did a thing on marriage, it helped my marriage so much. And they, don't talk to me about marriage and church. They might not do that. They may go, oh, that's interesting, what, kind of, what, what did you learn? Talk to me about that, maybe our marriage could use it. That's a gospel opportunity, amen? So we need to be gracious in the way that we speak to people. I, I think what I'm trying to say here, and I hope you're understanding me, the world is gonna hate you. But not every single individual that you bump into in the world is gonna shut the door in your face. Don't lose gospel opportunities because you're assuming that you're supposed to be living like a monk in public. Amen? There are no monks in the Bible. That was developed much, much later. We don't find any verses that Matthew never says, go thou and be a monk. We don't see it. On the contrary, the Lord wants us to live in the world. If we aren't in the world, how will the world hear the word of the gospel? Now, if they put their hand in your face and they say, I hate you and I don't like you and Jesus is is fake, okay, you can stop there. (laughs) But don't assume that every contact you have with someone in the world is going to be a dead end. Okay, so I, I just want you to receive that. Third, I want you to note that persecution of Christians is connected to Christ's word. This is really what it's all about. The persecution that Christians experience is a direct result of being connected with Christ. But Christ himself says it is because of his word. While not every encounter we have with people is going to be confrontational or argumentative or rooted in their desire to persecute Christians, we can't deny this reality either. Jesus says in verse 22, look at your word. Fifteen twenty two. If I had not come and spoken to them, you get that? If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. That's an interesting verse. Of course, they would have been guilty of sin anyway, generally speaking. What Christ is saying here is, I think essentially this, by virtue of his coming into the world, by virtue of the fact that salvation has been provided by him, we say, I, I. we are without excuse. In fact, the word for excuse here in the Greek is prophasis, it literally means pretext or pretense. In other words, the fact that knowledge and accountability are linked here, knowledge and accountability are linked here, we can't miss this point. Just because people dismiss Jesus and Christians doesn't mean that their dismissal is justifiable. Jesus says it doesn't matter. I have come, and with my coming, I have removed all pretense or excuse D.A. Carson a New Testament scholar writes this whatever pretense the world might have conjured up to justify its evil before the coming of Christ it has entirely lost now that this sublime revelation from God himself has come how good is that in fact to take it a step further I think that Jesus' coming not only provides salvation for those who believe, I think that Jesus' coming guarantees the judgment of those who don't. The death of Jesus Christ is the thing by which God justifies and the thing by which God judges. Listen, my question isn't whether or not the world loves or hates you. My question is whether or not you're living the Christ-led, Spirit-filled life that you're supposed to be living as a Christian. If you do, you're going to have issues with people in the world. If you have no problems with anyone in the world, I have to ask you, matter-of-factly and point-blank, are you living a Christ-led, Spirit-filled life? You say, are are you saying, Joe, that I've got to rub people wrong sometimes because of Christ? Yes! That's exactly what I'm saying. Pick a fight with somebody. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Woe to you when everyone says something nice about you. That's not my word. That's Jesus' word. Listen, if everybody likes you, you're a politician, man your aim is not to get everyone to like you your aim is to help people realize that they were created to bring god glory that's it you were created to bring god glory in all that you do whether you eat or drink do it all to god's glory paul says that is our life we play music we do it to his glory When I prepare a word, I try to do it to the best of my ability because it's for his glory. When we come to church, we don't come so that we can check it off. We come because we bring God glory in spending time together and lifting up his name. This is why we live the way we do, because God created us so that we might bring him glory because he is worthy of glory. So when we bump into people and we share the truth of Christ, We're not trying to get them to believe what we believe. We're trying to get them to follow Christ. We get ourselves out of the way. We remove ourselves from the equation, and we say, you should glorify Christ because Christ is worthy of your glory. So our first point acknowledges the fact that we as Christians are in the world But our second point is also equally, if not more important, and that is this, that the Spirit is in the Christian. The Christian might be in the world, but the Spirit is in the Christian. Amen? Amen. Look at the text again, if you would. This is chapter 15, beginning in verse 26. But when the helper, you remember that, the, the paraclete, the one who counsels us the one who comes alongside of us and advises us helps us we talked about that a couple of weeks ago you can catch up on that if you're interested on our podcast when the helper that is the spirit comes whom i will send to you from the father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will bear witness about whom me and you also will, will excuse me <clears throat> and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning this is our second and final point today the spirit and the christian this is a topic that we've already discussed as i've mentioned as bible believing christians as bible believing christians by the way there is not another kind I received a very nice phone mail uh, this week from Bruce, who was very kind to call and say, thank you for preaching the word, which is very encouraging. Galatians 6.6 6 says, let all good things be communicated to the one that teaches, which is great. It's a wonderful encouragement, and I was so glad. That means everything to me. But, but he followed his encouragement with a bit of an admonition. Don't stop. I need to hear that too, Amen. I need to receive that too. Because there are Christians in the world who want to be cool so badly, right? They want to be received by the world so badly that they go on Oprah and they go on The View and they go on CNN and they go on all these and they say, well, listen, you're a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Tell me what you think about this. And they give this light beer, diluted, horrible answer to a topic in the Bible that is clear as glass. And, they go, and then the world goes, see, we got you again. Even we know what you're supposed to believe about that. It's orthodoxy that the world wants to hear. They don't like you anyway, by the way. If you're liberal, they like you less because they know you're a sellout. The world's gonna be the world whether you're conservative or liberal. You might as well be conservative and hold to the truth of the gospel. Amen? The Word of God says that we should be Bible-believing Christians. There isn't another kind. And as such, we believe in the Trinity, one God who is three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm going to show you a diagram. It's going to come up here on the screen. This will give you a sort of picture of what we're talking about. One God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But the Father's not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And so on and so forth. But the three individual persons are one God. And the one God is three distinct persons. You say, this is hard to wrap my brain around. Perfect. The second you explain it, I can assure you, you're wrong. There's supposed to be a mystery in this, guys. Many of you have heard of T.D. Jakes, very popular, well-known pastor. He's a heretic. He teaches what is called modalism. It is a heresy of years and years and years ago. They don't believe in a trinity. They believe that God has appeared in three modes, thus modalism. There's only one God. In the Old Testament, he was the father. In the time of Jesus' life, it was Jesus, and now it's the age of the Spirit. One God showing himself three ways. False! False! We can combat that in one incident. Jesus is being baptized. The Father is speaking. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the anointing of the Spirit happens to Jesus. All in one episode, the Trinity is present. So. I don't often throw names out, but I I mention names to you because sometimes we need, you need to know. You need to know that, that some of the most talented preachers out there, some of the most popular preachers out there teach false doctrine. Paul says to Timothy, I have warned the church about Alexander and Hymenaeus. They call false teachers out by name in the Bible. That's our responsibility. Why is it so important? Why is the Trinity a doctrine that is so important? Because the Father authored salvation. The Son accomplished salvation on the cross. And the Spirit applies salvation to all who believe. Without the Trinity, there is no salvation. So, if we trip up on the doctrine of the Trinity, Christianity becomes null and void. Null and void. I went back through my copy of the Quran last night because I was reminded that in Surah 19, I've read the Quran a few times, know your enemy. In Surah 19, it says that the angel Gabriel came to Mary during the time of Jesus' birth. And the Holy Spirit is the angel Gabriel. See, they, they have to explain away the Trinity because they don't believe in the Trinity. So in the New World Translation, I have read that too. This is the Jehovah's Witness Bible. They have gone through all the New Testament passages where the Trinity is obvious and they have reworded it, even though the language in the original Greek is simple, simple, simple. They have to translate it wrong. Why? Because they don't believe in a Trinity. So in John chapter eight, when Jesus is debating with those Pharisees who know the Old Testament through and through, right, that's their book. And he's discussing it with them, and they say, "Uh, you aren't, we're descendants of Abraham. You're you're not even speaking in accordance with this. And he says, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Every translation of the Bible in the world says, I am. You know who said I am, right? Exodus chapter 3, Moses says, when I go to your people, whom shall I say, sent me? And God says, Tell them I am. Tell them I am. That's God's name. It is the anglicized Yahweh. It's so what we say, Jehovah. it is the verb to be in Hebrew. And God was saying, "You can't box me in. You can give me all the names in the world, and it would not. It wouldn't exhaust who I am. So just tell them I am sent you. So when Jesus says to them, "Oh, you're not even 50 years old, how can you say that you knew Abraham? And Jesus said, before Abraham was I am." The Jehovah's Witnesses in their New World Translation translate that verse, Before Abraham was, I have been. Oh, well, that, that, that changes everything. It changes everything. All of a sudden, there isn't a trinity anymore. You see, Jesus was identifying with the Father when he said, I am. And the reason we know that they knew What Jesus was saying when he said, I am, is because in the very next verse it says, they picked up rocks to kill him for blasphemy. They knew what Jesus was saying. They knew, but we mistranslate. I say we. They mistranslate to get away with their false doctrine. The Trinity is an indispensable part to our faith. We cannot do Christianity without the Trinity. So, having gone through that and beat that drum a little bit, you have a uh, a view here of kind of what we're talking about. The conviction to witness to Christ, in spite of the fact that being a witness to Christ will probably bring you ridicule and mockery and persecution, is just that it's a conviction. It's a conviction that is borne out by the Spirit of God who lives inside of you. That's why we went over this Trinity thing because that's what Jesus is saying. When the Spirit of truth comes, whom I will send from the Father, Trinity, when he comes to you, he's going to do these things. Listen, if you don't share Christ, if you don't allow your Christianity to stand out too boldly because you don't want to offend people or be hurt, or maybe get embarrassed by what they might say to you, you live a life of convenience, not conviction. That's what this word is saying to you and me. Let me break it down in two parts. First, the Spirit will bear witness about Jesus. The Spirit will bear witness to us about Jesus. We looked at that. When the Helper comes, whom I am whom going to send from the Father, Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. He will bear witness about me. We've already gone over this at length, but by way of reminder, let me say it again. The Spirit's ministry is to magnify Jesus, not Himself. So if you're a Christian, you are therefore possessed by God the Holy Spirit. And therefore, you too will magnify Jesus. The Spirit will bear witness about me, Jesus says in verse 26. So we have to, first and foremost, appreciate the fact that the Spirit is the spotlight who is shining on Jesus. He wants people to see Jesus. Now, if you go to some of our charismatic and more Pentecostal brothers' churches, and there's, they're hot and heavy, and they're getting kind of wild... I don't know about that. It's the Spirit doing it to me. I don't know about that. Are you making much of Jesus, or are you trying to make this a, look at me, I'm baptized in God, the Holy Spirit thing? Because if you are, that's not biblical. The Spirit's ministry is to put the spotlight on whom? On Jesus. This means that since the church is Spirit-baptized, Everything that it does should glorify God in the name of whom? Jesus Christ. Second, the Spirit reminds us or witnesses to Jesus in us. So, secondly, we bear witness to others about Jesus. See the progression? The Spirit reminds us about Jesus, we speak to others about Jesus. This is the progression that we see, it's clear. The Spirit does a work in us of magnifying Jesus, we in turn become witnesses to his glory and to his goodness to others. This is what we're breaking down on Wednesday nights because we ha- <clears throat> excuse me, because we have been dumbed down, we've been intimidated, we've been discouraged And even silenced in some ways around the country and around the globe. But our circumstances, listen to me when I say this, our circumstances, collectively, your circumstances in particular, my circumstances, they don't dictate whether or not we magnify Christ. We must magnify Christ. That is our goal. That is our job. As Christians, we can do nothing else, nothing short of bringing Christ glory. I think that this is so important right now. I think it's important because we're surrounded by lost people who think like lost people, talk like lost people, and act like lost people. But I also think it's important because the church sometimes doesn't look much different. For Christians, this is where it all starts. With the baptism of the Spirit, we're regenerated. That is, we're born again by the Spirit. We're justified. That is, put in a right standing with God by faith in Jesus. And we're sanctified to look more and more like Jesus himself before others. But God's Spirit, church... He has a purpose. His purpose is to help us work for God's glory in the world. And this is what I think the Apostle John meant when he said in 1 John 4:4: greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Some of you are battling sins here today. You brought your sins with you, and maybe you're saying it's been a while since I've been in church or you're saying I'm going I've been going to another church and I'm just visiting today whatever the circumstances might be it's good that you're here in the presence of God's people and God's preaching but regardless of whatever you brought in here with you today you need to be reminded that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world no more excuses that's what Jesus is saying no more excuses I have endowed you with the power to overcome the shortcomings and the sin and the difficulty. Say amen. We can do it through the power of God who is in us. But we cannot say, please Jesus, excuse me while I go over here and do this thing. Please Jesus, excuse me while I go over here and have this conversation. Please Spirit, don't convict me in the next few moments while I entertain this pleasure, whatever it might be. The Spirit of God has a job and His job is to magnify Jesus and to make us more like Jesus every single day, day in and day out. To close, let me encourage you. I want to read this quote from J.C. Ryle. Poetically, J.C. Ryle says, let us never forget that the position of the apostles is that which In a certain sense, every true Christian must fill. As long as the world stands. We must all be witnesses for Christ. We must not be ashamed to stand up for Christ's cause. To speak out for Christ. And to persist in maintaining the truth of Christ's gospel. Wherever we are, in town or in country, in public or in private abroad or at home we must boldly confess our master on every opportunity